chillin' and a you will hear about the eliminating of the negative and a accent on a positive. And gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing the attitude of doing right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird and Friends. This podcast is sponsored by Fordata, a Canberra-based company that is committed to ensuring business owners have reliable and professional IT services. I'm a client of Fordata. I use their website hosting services, and I'm also reducing my email spam with their secure email hosting service. As a special offer to the Joyful Frugalista podcaster listeners, Fordata will provide, wherever you are, website hosting at $12 a month and up to two hours initial free migration service, valued at $300. Find them online at number 4data.com.au. 4data, they fix IT. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today I have a very special guest who's talking about a subject which is very close to my heart, and that is learning. Welcome, Harry. Great to be here. Thank you. Harry Armitage is also known as the learning difficulty expert. He is founder of Listen for Life and specialises in working with bright, sensitive kids who are struggling to learn. He also works with adults, or at least those who have a commitment to self-responsibility. Harry, you've worked, before we get on to talking about learning, you've worked for many years in economics and consumer research, and we were talking a bit about that earlier. Yeah, one of my more interesting jobs was uh, to run the research effort for the department stores in Coles Meyer. So that was Meyer and Grace Brothers. Wow. And we had a look at what might sell, what wouldn't, and why people buy what they buy. One of the most inter- interesting things I remember is why women buy cosmetics when they're feeling depressed. That is a big thing. The lipstick effect, isn't it, that yeah. we saw in the Great Depression. Correct. And they buy it knowing that it really won't make themselves feel better, but they still buy it anyway. Mm. And they can spend hundreds of dollars and walk out the shop feeling much the same as they did when they walked in. I'm guessing here that guys don't get this. <laughs> guys don't get this, no. They might walk into a stereo shop. <laughs> well, I'll be honest here and say that there was a very tough period in my life, which was in my marriage, my first marriage, when I was going through domestic violence and there'd been a violent issue and my face was not looking terribly flash. And every time I looked in the mirror, I remembered that and I didn't feel very good about myself. So I went on a lipstick challenge for one month of deciding to wear some really nice lipstick for a whole month. And I actually took myself to a department store and I'm very frugal and I purchased some Shiseido lipstick. And I remember that because to me that was a lot of money and I don't usually buy that. And it was actually quite a big thing to say to the universe that I am worthy of buying this expensive lipstick. So I get that, I really do, that women spend this money on on these things. And that brand had built a good image in your brain, which is why you (laughs) bought it. It did. I don't know why I particularly wanted that brand, but I I really did. I I wanted something that was a bit luxury and I wanted something that was a bit special. And I guess that's what a lot of other women are doing. They perhaps didn't have as strong as an experience that I did in terms of feeling a bit blah. But 
that's, I guess, what's being sold, isn't it? Yeah, and people are very brand loyal and it's a bit like, well, Coke's a really good example. Mm. They sell this concept of enjoying life and having fun. Do it better with Coke. Yeah, exactly. They don't talk about rotting teeth or how you can clean your toilet with it. Yeah, it's just sugar and water (laughs) and something else. (laughs) And something else. What else do people spend on and what do department stores do with this kind of consumer research? Well, if we wanted to know whether a particular brand fitted in a store, you can find that out by getting groups of consumers sitting around a table like we are now and asking them the questions about what they like. We can show them. We can ask them to talk about anything. There's big differences between males and females. If you go into a male floor in a shop, there will often be multiple exits (laughs) because men don't like to be trapped by shop assistants. Whereas if you go into the women's floor, it's fine. They don't mind being trapped. That is really interesting, the hunter-gatherer effect. A couple of weekends ago, I took my lovely Neil and my kids to a new kind of vintage antique store that's opened in Canberra. And I was in my element. There was all these lovely blingy things. There were chandeliers and there was jewellery and there was clothing and there <laughs> was antiques. You're getting the picture here. Neil was like... Let's go. And as we left in the car, he said, this is a shop for you to come back to with your girlfriends. He said, I kept seeing all these men there with this trapped look on their face going, get me out of there. So we did research on that too. Why is it that men don't like going shopping? And the answer we found was that the reason was because their dads didn't take them shopping. Really? Yeah. If I take my boys shopping for lots of bling and lots of... You're the mum, though. It's the dad that needs to take the boys shopping. The dads need to take them shopping. Yes, dads. That's fascinating. Have department stores done a lot of work in terms of getting dads to take their sons shopping? No, but they just understand that's why it is. It's quite expensive to socially engineer patterns in society like getting 18 year olds not to get very drunk and get in a car and drive around (laughs) like when I was a kid you have to spend lots of money changing social patterns dads take boys out fishing or whatever (laughs) got enough money you can do it (laughs) if you've got enough money you can do it I guess but going back to shopping and let's talk about women Mm. so why do women like shopping so much and what are they buying what are the really big ticket, big income earning for department store items? Well, the ground floor, cosmetics and perfume is the most profitable. The margins are astronomical. That's why they're fitted out the best. That's why they're on the ground floor by the fancy doors. And that's why they have the most marble and the best lights and the best shop fittings. This and, is really and, interesting. And women, women shop for that stuff because it makes them feel better in the moment. They get a dopamine reward. They feel better about themselves. Yeah. And it is a nice experience. It's, yeah. It's, and you're pampered. Pretty. A beautiful girl's going to make you up and pamper you. <laughs> <laughs> Not your thing, I, I know. But, you know, I'm frugal. Yeah. Um, obviously. But I'm just trying to think. I've got, I think, five, maybe six bottles of perfume. Yeah. Being the frugalist, I'm sure you buy good quality perfume that's going to last Uh, Interesting issue. I predominantly use a bottle of perfume I think I bought for $1, maybe $2. 
at my church garage sale at the moment and I bought it and I quite liked it and it's the the fragrance that my husband Neil prefers on me. It's a, mm. a very basic rose fragrance. I have more expensive perfume that I purchased online from the States before I met him. It's They're both Dior and I like them. He doesn't like them on me. Good rose perfume is expensive to make. You may have got it for $2 where you got it, but it was probably more than that retail. Floral perfumes are very expensive to make. You mm. need kilos and kilos of petals <laughs> to make a little bottle. Of course, these days a lot of them are synthetics as well. And they're disgusting. They're horrible. You get a headache. and Yeah, perfumes are not what they were. Mm. Yeah, I remember when I was first married, I would get my wife a perfume called Joy and it would last over a day. Now it doesn't last a full day. So something's changed. I think they've taken out the ambergris, which is what they extract from whales. Mm. So it doesn't last. It doesn't last, but there's yeah. a reason that they've done there's that. There's a reason, yeah. Moving now to the present and what you're doing. So you've had a career change. What are you doing now? And how did you get into this type of work? I got really sick. And like anybody who's worked in a field for a long time, I'd been working in economics. And underneath any economic model is, is a, a simplified pattern of human behavior. And underneath that is an assumption. And I got sick of the assumptions. So what I was left with was training graduates about how to incorporate their ethical structure in the assumptions they were making under the models, which then derived the results. I got very sick in the tropics, and as part of my journey to recovery, I ended up in a clinic in Canberra, and I looked at what they were doing with children, and it looked more interesting and more exciting and more worthwhile than anything that I'd done. And we had a conversation, and I ended up not being able to get an interview in this town. I have a very good resume. You know, sometimes life gives you a nudge in a certain direction. I know all about that. We followed the nudge and decided we'd try and work together. I went over to the States and retrained at 53. Then I did a double diploma in wellness consultancy and nutritional medicine. And I use music and movement and play to work with mostly children to help remove the roadblocks they have to learning. And these foundations are really simple. It's not rocket science. It's about how they sense every moment in their life. Can they be in a classroom and understand what's going on without being irritated by the scratchiness of their clothes or the flicker of the neon lights or the child two desks down who are talking too loud or scratching the table or squeaking their chair? And are they going to make sense of what the teacher's saying to them? Are they going to understand that when the teacher changes their inflection that that's the time to pay attention? Are they going to be able to hear the teacher's voice over the row in the corridor next to them? Or the double or triple classroom that Canberra schools seem to be obsessed with? That's interesting because there's a lot of assumptions, aren't there, that all children will just socialise and fit in and do what the teacher's told and listen when the teacher speaks. Be able to process all those signals without overloading. And if it's too much, then they'll do two things, and this is character-driven. They'll either withdraw 
like many of the girls do, and they'll be quiet, and if they're bright, they'll sit somewhere around in the middle of the classroom academically, and the teacher won't notice them, even if there's a potential in a headroom to get right up to the top. And if they're a boy, they will tend to, more likely to disrupt. To get a bit of attention. No, because because they can take control. Okay. They can manage the situation, which is something that's out of their control. That's interesting. So they're not doing it for attention, they're doing it for control. It's a survival strategy. I mean, how do we all feel if you're asked to do something and you try your best and it makes no difference? And then you're asked to do it again, your best, for year after year. That's very bleak. I never really thought that so many children must feel like that going through the school system. Yeah, absolutely. And it's as bad as a bright kink being bored at school. We were talking about that before, so I'm really glad you raised that. My youngest son, who's just turned eight last week, is gifted. And I know that because he first started talking when he was eight months old. He had a recognised vocabulary of about ten words. Before I realised what he was doing, it started with me realising he could say iPad. <laughs> iPad, iPad. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? It wasn't me giving him the iPad either, but he'd become addicted to the iPad. And so he saw me with the iPad in my hand and he started going, iPad, iPad, iPad. So the reason why he got addicted is because these screens generate rewards and the rewards generate dopamine. And dopamine is highly addictive and as you get more and more of it, your thresholds go up. And unfortunately, there's very few teachers on the planet or very few parents on the planet who can match the dopamine rewards of an iPad. Mm. So if your child has an attention deficit and you allow them to become addicted to whatever's on the iPad, that will reduce their capacity to attend in the classroom, which is by comparison boring. must be a huge issue for teachers. It's a huge issue for society because it's restructuring the brains of our young children. Wow. Back to my youngest, who I had diagnosed when he was three and a half as being on the gifted and talented spectrum. He taught himself how to read before he started school. And I only worked that out when I was trying to teach him actually how to read and he wasn't paying attention and he was mucking up and acting up. And then he was reading his elder brother's books. And I went, okay, we've got an issue here. He's, he's worked it out himself. And he desperately loves maths, loves maths. But the school is still giving him the same level of coursework and they're not letting him move up. And he tells me he's so bored at school and all he does all day is sit there and watch the clock go. So what I say to every mum in this situation is that you need to put on your armour And you need to go into the school and make a bloody fuss because he is the client as you are. And if they're not serving him, they need to be prodded and poked by you and made to feel uncomfortable until they change their behaviour. I'm sure there's a lot of other parents who have a similar situation going on. When I do raise a fuss, and I've raised a fuss a couple of times, late last year and most recently last week, they come back to me and they say, He's doing really, really well at school. He's got lots and lots of friends and it's really good for him to be mentoring other students. Now, when I talk to him, he says, Mum, what happens is the teacher says that other kids have to ask someone else before they ask her. So all day I've got other kids asking me how to do stuff and it's really hard because I can't always explain to them because it's so easy for me. 
So I think that's just a standard cop-out. They are not prepared to find the coursework to challenge him. And I'm sure it's fine for him to mentor kids some of the time, but some of the time he needs to be doing his own work. And it needs to be challenging. I think to be bored is like death. Every time I got bored in a career, I would change jobs. It's horrible. It'll turn you off learning. Mm. Yeah. Well, I saw that earlier this year, actually. He suddenly stopped reading. Now, this was a kid who taught himself how to read before he started school. And he just sort of went, no, I don't like reading. It's not my thing. I only like math. And I went, okay, this is interesting because you used to really like reading. So I started taking him to the local library and I said, choose any book you like. And he went, no, I'm fine, thanks. Don't really want any. And like, really? You don't want any books? And I chose a few for him. And he's like, no, don't like any of those. And I worked out what it was that he had read all the books at his level in the library. And so because he's just turned eight, his reading comprehension is probably more like an 11-year-old, but he doesn't have the life experience or comprehension to get that. And so he just stopped reading. Mm. So, I mean, it gets back to the core objective of the teachers that are in his classroom. What are they there for? And it's clearly not to inspire a love of learning. Mm. You know, and they're probably overworked and underpaid and underrespected, very stressed. It is hard for teachers, and we've had COVID as well on top of everything else. It's really hard. But nevertheless, you have to be the bit of grit in their shoe (laughs) until they take the shoe off. (laughs) What about dedicated, gifted and talented programs? Are they better for younger children? I, I think they're really good if they're integrated in the school. I mean, it's the American approach to have gifted schools and to stream gifted kids into separate schools. I think it's better if we're all in the stream together and we rub our shoulders together as we would in a normal society. But I think it's important to challenge gifted kids with some extension work. So at least some of the curriculum is is giving them a gentle stretch challenge. Yeah. Mm. But another thing about gifted people that many don't understand is that you can be gifted with a learning difficulty You can be bright with a learning difficulty and you can be dumb or delayed or disadvantaged with a learning difficulty. Learning difficulties that are sensory-based don't discriminate according to IQ. Not that IQ measures intelligence. It doesn't. It measures IQ. What's the difference between intelligence and IQ? Well, intelligence is much wider. For instance, we have this concept of emotional intelligence where we're understanding how other people are feeling. You can think of a child who's not good at something. They've got a weakness, but they've got a strategy where they'll employ others who are good at that to to do that with them. And if we look at what skills are useful in workplaces, it's about collaboration. It's about working together on teams. And it's about delegation. And understanding what you're good at, what your talent is, and what you're not so good at. It took me many years to realize that I wasn't really very good at doing my own tax, so I can delegate that to somebody else who's really good at that. (laughs) Or that I don't want to repair my car, so I go to a mechanic and give it to somebody who loves doing that stuff. So we both do spend more of our time at what we're good at, what we enjoy. And that's another thing. A lot of people think that hard work should be really hard. My view is that everybody has a talent. We just have to discover it. And then if you use your talent, if you work in that field, yes, it's work, but it's not really hard. 
it's enjoyable. That is so profound. I was actually just speaking with someone else in my last podcast about how women in particular often feel they're not deserving and so they therefore have to work really, really hard. But when you are doing what you love and what you're naturally good at, you are in the flow, aren't you? Absolutely. So sometimes with the children that I see, all I have to do is to create a safe space where they feel safe and maybe sometimes just lie on the floor with them while they play. Wow. And there's a program around that, but some children, it may be, you know, one of the few times in their life when they have a safe space outside their family. School may not be a safe place for them if they're overloading, Mm. if they're bullied, so on, if they've got a learning challenge. They are very big issues. Mm. You talk extensively about the power of listening. Yeah. Listening's really important. If you look at the, the embryological development Six days, around six days after the moment of conception, the first cells in the organ of hearing are laid down. Six days. Six days. That organ, which is called the cochlea, starts operating and working about week 16. That's why when you're carrying a baby, you can feel them respond to sound. Wow. So there's a whole period before birth when lots of the nervous system is built, when the fetus is processing sound and listening. And... The mother's language is profoundly important. It shapes the listening pathways. And the reason why listening, hearing and listening is so important is because it has a unique power to shape the brain, to connect the brain. Yes, we learn language. Yes, we can communicate as a side effect. But my view is the primary purpose is to build the brain. That is really interesting and that is quite different to how I've always thought about listening and sound. So if you think about your husband, there's probably times when you ask him to do things and he doesn't respond. (laughs) I can pretty much guarantee that he heard what you were saying, but he wasn't listening. (laughs) Or the other week when I asked him if he liked dinner and technically he did say yes, but the answer was, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So listening's optional, but hearing's not. Mm. Yeah. And what is really powerful in, in a program like the ones I offer is to tune up the brain so that clients can pay attention to important voices around them rather than the background noise, rather than the clutter that engulfs them. Well, we were talking before about this, that listening is something that I actually struggle with as someone who is more extroverted my natural state is as a talker and I love languages and I love talking and communicating in those foreign languages. Listening is a lot more work for me. So you found your talent. You found your voice and you're using it on a podcast like this and this is, it's work for you but it's easy. You feel the flow. Mm. That's great. But I think most of these patterns go back to early childhood. Pretty much all learning difficulties can be found and depression and disturbed behaviour, the roots of those can be found in early childhood. Goes that far back? Almost always, yeah. Fabulous. Well, we were talking before and I know you have some amazing Frugalista tips to share. In fact, you've even got a prop. I have. One of the things that I absolutely abhor is when children are given plastic toys on Christmas Day and they have batteries and they don't work by the end of Christmas night. I think it's awful. It's awful for the kids. It's such a waste of resources. And what I've brought in here is a wooden block, and I've made many sets of these for my children and my siblings and the clinic I work in. 
And the great thing about a wooden block is it doesn't need any batteries. You can throw it across the room, you can sit on it, you can put a chair on it, it's still the same wooden block. Hopefully kids don't throw it at their siblings. No, hopefully not. <laughs> but I, I, I encourage my clients to build a tower with them higher than them and they don't believe they can do it, but they always can. And then we get a ball and they knock it down. And I film, so much fun. I film it on slow-mo on my phone and show them. <laughs> <laughs> so my tips are reward yourself with quality when you buy stuff. So if you have a real need, satisfy that need, but get a product that's going to meet your need. How do you do that? One, one way if you're buying online or you're checking it out online is to have a look at the reviews. Have a look at what other people have said about the product. So I had an example the other day. We are picking up a camper trailer this weekend. I was looking for a hose to fill it. And I thought it would be great to have a hose on a reel. And there was one which was a, a rectangular hose on a reel and took up no space at all. And I thought, that looks wonderful. It's so good. It meets all my <laughs> needs. And then I looked at the reviews. Cracked after one month. Car drove over it and it broke. <laughs> so I didn't get it. I stuck with the round one. So the second thing is educate yourself about repair options if it fails. Mm. I repair a lot of audio equipment because it's the, it's the product that allows the therapy I use to get to clients. So things like microphones, cords, iPods are all repairable. You just have to pull them to bits and find out which bit needs replacing. This is an important skill and my Neil is very good at repairing things. And that's why I hate chipboard furniture, by the way, because it's very difficult to repair. Once it gets moisture into it, it expands and you can't unexpand it. You know, if you're thinking about a table like this one we're sitting at that may creak, but that's okay. It's going to be repairable. We can screw up the screws. We can re-glue it. It's not going to matter if we get it wet. And the third thing is when you have something that's outworn its use with you, before you throw something in the bin, ask yourself if, if it could be reused, recycled or deconstructed. For instance, when something in our house runs out of its use and I can't repair it, I'll pull it to bits, keep the screws, keep the metalwork, and I can make a bracket out of it or whatever. Because of the, I think, 50 million tonnes of waste discarded every year, thrown out everywhere in the waste stream, about 85% of it is discarded goods. So the more we can buy good stuff that can be disassembled and reused and reshaped and reformed, the better. The circular economy. Yeah. Been a lot of talk about the circular economy, but not yet a lot of actuality about it. It requires a lot of planning. Yeah. We need to put industries together that co-locate. One takes the waste product of the other and so on. And to design things with its end in mind, which we don't currently do. Correct. Uh, it's good to see that they're starting to build a factory in, I think, Albury to recycle plastics. That is good. Yeah. And sadly, a lot of this has been forced by the fact we could no longer kind of dump our waste products overseas. Well, I think it's a benefit because there's a lot of food miles in that waste going all the way to China. <laughs> <laughs> there is indeed. So thank you very much, Harry, for being on. Now, how can people find you? And you have a website and you have quite a lot of other channels where people can connect with you as well. I do, yes. My website is listen4life.com 
And that's the best place for people to find me because they can then fill out uh, my listing scorecard and check out whether there's any benefit in my services for them. They can find me on Facebook under Harry Armitage or Listen for Life. I do most of my work on Facebook. I do a little bit on Instagram and virtually nothing on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I guess that's probably they're not. It's a different forum for you. Yeah, I find it a bit tedious, Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for being on this podcast. To talk about learning and listening and consumer trends and all the other amazing things that we've discussed today, including the circular economy, Please join the Joyful Frugalista Facebook group so that you can discuss these things in more detail. And please do like and follow this podcast and leave me a comment or a review if you like that. I would really appreciate that. That would be fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you, Serena. Oh, listen to me, chillin' Anna. You will hear about the eliminating of the negative and the accent on a positive. You've been listening to the Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. You got an accentuate the positive eliminate the negative latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between.